Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. And my name is Father Peter Musson. That's true it is. So we apologize for those of you who have already written to us and sent us angry emails. We are a little late this week. We are recording on Friday, which is the Feast of St. Joseph. Can I tell you how happy I am that people are angry at us for not publishing on I time? should be fair. They're not angry. They're just, they seem concerned. Um, Where are you? Where's the podcast? What's um, going on? Is everything okay? Are you right? <laughs> I got to give a homily in 20 minutes. <laughs> there's some vigorousness. There's, you know, it's a little bit. But, but you know, it makes me, praise be to God, I, people are listening to the podcast, which, you know what? That's all I can ask for. I was, uh, we were we were both at a funeral of a, a mutual friend, a family member yesterday, and there were a number of priests that I talked to after the funeral, after the funeral who... Listen regularly, which I, I know that, but it, it is always a, a little bit like, oh man, people listen to this podcast. And it is such a, there, there's no greater honor than knowing that people right. want um, want to, that we are helping to form uh, people in the word of God. Praise be to God for that. And I'm very grateful. You know, if people talk to me uh, later on about the podcast, and it's a little bit like confession when somebody says like, hey, you gave me this piece of advice in confession. Thanks for that word that you said in the podcast. And I'm like, I said that? And you're bound by canon law to not repeat <laughs> who it was. <laughs> it, it, it feels a little bit. It, was, it feels a little bit like that sometimes. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so shout out to, uh, to particularly to Father uh, Jason Wunsch. Oh, Father Jason Wunsch. Vunch, Vunch or twice. We, we've we've been and like, Father Sean Galvin, who apparently prefers the version of us from six years ago to the present day. <laughs> which he which always, all, he's always felt that way. But what that means is that six years from now he'll get the joke. <laughs> so here's to you, Father Sean. Yeah, word up to Galvin. So uh, we're entering into the fifth Sunday of Lent. That's right. Our first reading is from Jeremiah, also known as chapter 31, 31, 34. Also known as, yeah, so Jeremiah is what you were saying there. Jeremiah 31, 31, 34. Our response to song, I just repeated it. Sorry. But you never said it in normal English. Jeremiah was the I'm name. writing them poems today. Good. I like it. Our today you guys get poetry. Speaking of poetry, our responsorial psalm, <laughs> which is a bit of a, a psalmic poem, is Psalm 51, verses 3 to 4, 12 through 13, and 14 through 15. Uh, our second reading is from uh, uh, the coffee shop. Oh, jeez. Here we go. Hebrews chapter five. It's been years. Seven through nine. Oh, Father Peter. How does Moses like his coffee? Wait. How does joke? Moses like his coffee? How does the joke go? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Our gospel is coming from the gospel of John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. What some people suggest is the turning point in the entire gospel of John. I'll make a case for that soon. <laughs> turning point. I think it is the turning point of the entire gospel. USA. Um, I have a lot of things and a lot of things moving in my heart about each of these readings, and I'm hoping that I can connect them all together. I'm hoping you can, too. Um, a couple things I want to say about Jeremiah uh, from the outset. Jeremiah, I don't... So we always, you, you in particular, always make fun of our time in, in Isaiah, which we always are. Quite a bit. <laughs> the church spends a lot of time in the Isaiah, in the Isaiah. In the, the Isaiah. Um, but Jeremiah, did you know that Jeremiah is actually the longest book of the Bible? No. 
It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jeremiah is the longest book of the Bible, which means, what does that mean? It means we have more words of the prophet Jeremiah than we have of anybody else, which is interesting because I don't think Jeremiah gets the full um, credit that he's due necessarily. I mean, because I'll say that Isaiah seems a lot longer than Jeremiah. It is not. But, but And it, I, I'm, when, I'm a turn- little embarrassed that I didn't know that until I was reading a commentary. And I was like, no, you're kidding. But I didn't realize that Jeremiah was the longest book of the Bible. Jeremiah, you know why? Uh, no. Because oh, the dude had to suffer for all of it. Yes. I mean, like true. his, it, talk about an existential prophet. You're going to really like this. Okay. So no, I was doing a little research on just, just backdrop of Jeremiah. No one knows exactly as far as the Hebrew rendering no one knows precisely what the word Jeremiah means. <laughs> um, some it could mean the Lord exalts or 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 um, the Lord establishes, perhaps. But the most likely translation, oh, no. which no one's entirely sure, the most likely translation, and I, I almost want to read word for word for the <laughs> okay. commentary to you. The most likely translation is the Lord throws, <laughs> in the sense of and that's not the joke. <laughs> in the sense that you know he, Jeremiah is is almost like something that the Lord is throwing into the people to give this message. He's like a javelin that's thrown pointedly to try to point them in a certain direction. But there's another derivation that can mean either the Lord throws or the Lord throws down, <laughs> which is actually a, a possible a possible rendering of the name, dude. Because Jeremiah's message is the Lord throwing down, dude. I mean. <laughs> Talk about a throwdown. Jeremiah's whole life is a throwdown. But that's literally what the commentary said. Dude, that's it didn't mean best. it the way that I read it and I just said it to you. It meant like to throw down the stones from Jerusalem and destroy the city and all that. But I read it in terms of the Lord throws down, which is kind of true, though. I mean, based on what he actually prophesied. Dude, we're coming from Boulder. We're word on the hill. If you've been paying yeah. attention to the news, oh. I mean, dude, there's been some throwdown in Boulder. There's recently. been some throwdown, yeah, and dude, there will continue to be. It was funny. We were on a retreat, and uh, we were doing our student outreach retreat. Oh, it was the same weekend. Wasn't it was it? the same weekend. Yeah, yeah. So we're there, and like, and I, I call our retreat the Buffalo Awakening. It's the, uh, it's a, it's like a, it's like a festival of redemption. Okay. So it's it's actually a pretty fun retreat. Yeah, yeah. So we're there. I and never like, thought of it as a festival of redemption. I know. It's it's <laughs> kind of like the prodigal son. It's like, hey, you know what? The prodigal son comes back and it's it's a, a party. carnival of penance. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what you're saying. Yes, so, yes, it's a party. So we're there. And so all, like the few people who have their cell phones or whatever are Uh-oh. starting to get like this reports. Oh, and no. you can hear the helicopters flying overhead <laughs> oh, and, no. and the searchlights and the oh, whole night. Oh, gracious. And like, but everybody's. Like because it was a the the riots that happened in Boulder a few weeks ago were just a couple blocks away from the church. Right, right, and like and like every single person there was having FOMO. <laughs> oh no, I should but, be at the riot. No, including they're, me. They're smashing fire trucks at the riot. No, we're just here worshiping Jesus, dude. It's the it's the weirdest thing to be able to have have like. Like FOMO for this like totally crazy thing. We're on a retreat, but that FOMO ta- for those of you who are over nineteen means fear of missing out. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, FOMO. You need to know that. But term. just because it kind of sounds like it could be something like a cuss word or something naughty, right, it right. just means fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. So, which so, we all have. Which, which you're probably at this point. Fearing that you're missing out on the readings, right? Week. Right, because Jeremiah is—he has a throwdown, dude. He, okay, 
that's that's a fair transition. Okay. Um, this part of Jeremiah. So I've been. I'm just going to throw some stuff out, and I I know I'm. <laughs> Are you going to throw it down? No, I'm not throwing it down. I'm throwing You're it throw out. Throw it out. Okay. But I've been reading through this, and I I I'm I, I guess I'm I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you, and and just let you into my prayer life a little bit with this, because I I've been trying more, Father Peter, and all of you. Um, because I, I've been convicted of something that for years we've been doing this podcast, and I yeah. put in every week. I put in easily at least an hour of study, and and pro- sometimes multiple hours of study of reading commentaries of stuff. But um, what what I'm ashamed to admit is rarely do I put in that much time of praying with the scriptures and praying right. over the things that we're about to talk about. And I've been trying slowly and with great difficulty to do that more. Right. And my hesitancy is that I'm I'm seeing certain things in the text that you know it, it's not you know what's not exactly what you know the commentaries or what the Hebrew rendering is. But there's things that have kind of moved my heart about this that I just want to share with you guys because I think they're 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 kind of interesting. But this part of Jeremiah, we're toward the end end of the book. So Jeremiah's book, again, it's the longest book in the Bible, and so much of it is is utterly bad news. It is, yes. Jeremiah spans a really long period of time, from the time of Josiah, who is a very famous king of Israel, who is the, the one who is famously cut down in the plains of Megiddo, which is where we get the reference to Armageddon, Armageddon, of a righteous king who is cut down in his prime. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And he goes through this stream of really terrible diabolical, sinful kings of Israel who turn far from God, which during the midst of all of whom Jeremiah is prophesying that we have to turn back to the Lord, we have to go back to the covenant, we have to repent of our sins, and he is ignored, he is rejected, he is scoffed at, his life is sought number a number of times because he is throwing down on yeah. the sin that's going on. And he unfortunately lives to see the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that he forced foresaw because of the the sin of his people. Just before Jerusalem is destroyed and just after the foretelling of the exile that Israel is going to face in Babylon, because the southern kingdom will be taken into slavery in the nation of Babylon, right right after foretelling that, he gives chapter 30—well, it's right where we get our reading, but really it's between chapters 30 through 33, which is before the exile actually happens, he gives a promise of restoration— so after the inevitable punishment comes, God will restore us. And what he says is, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The new covenant, by the way, that's the only time in the in the Old Testament that the explicit phrase new covenant, which we could translate properly as New Testament, is used explicitly. There is oh. a number of times where there are allusions to it and typology of it and references that's, that's to what's A-L-L, coming. Not allusions, not illusions, allusions. But this is the only time I think that the actual term new covenant or new testament is used, which is really, really significant. Yeah. Because what it says is there's coming a time when I will make a new covenant, when I will literally, literally says I'll establish a new testament, which is what we talk about, the part of the Bible that talks about Jesus. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's significant because we're at a time in the history of Israel where Israel has been divided, first of all, in a brutal civil war in which the 12 tribes were divided against themselves, 12 against two, and 10 of those tribes have been hauled off into exile, intermarried with all the nations of the world, lost to the four corners of the earth. 
And God is saying, not only will I restore Judah, who is the Jewish people still remaining in Jerusalem and Judea, I'm going to restore all of Israel, which has been lost, which has been scattered to the four winds, which is lost among all nations of the earth. I'm going to reunite really what he's saying is all of humanity together. And it won't be like the covenant I made to their fathers. And this is where I was really struck. He says, it won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand and led them forth from the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus because they broke my covenant and I had to show myself as their master, says the Lord. So essentially he's saying in the past days, in the old days, in the old covenant, I showed Israel myself as a master. And whether I, it's not necessarily God's intent. God always wanted to show himself as father, but Israel saw him as master. He saw, they saw him as, which is like uh, the Allah. Right. Very much, very much so that you, you do save us. You do protect us. You do guide us, but not necessarily in the way in which God intended them to know him. You protect us, you guard us, you keep us safe, but as a master, as a, as a, as a, what was the, well, I mean, it's the, it's the rough part about being a father. Well, that's true. Yeah, like, right, right, right. Like yes. whenever I think about uh, yes. a, a dad having to pull authority, pull rank yeah. on their kids yeah. and being like, hey, you know what? I got to throw down on you. And there's a real time, <laughs> the throw down again. Right, exactly. But there's a real time and a place for that. Right, versus saying like, hey, let's get some ice cream. Right. Let's go roller skating in the street. But when your kids are beating the snot out of each other and disobeying you right. to the degree that they're putting themselves and everyone else in danger, it's not the time as a father to go get ice cream, no. which is an interesting way of actually explaining salvation history and the course of salvation history. Right. Because it's not that it's never that God changes. It's just that what human beings and Israel understands of God grows as time goes on. We grow in a deeper and more intimate understanding. So it's not that right. I think about my father, like how I've related to my dad yeah. as I've as I've grown up. Like when I was a kid, unfortunately he had to like discipline me. Yeah. So that I could actually you? be a disciple. I can't believe you needed to be disciplined. So, so that I could be a Sorry. disciple, so that I could actually learn the disciplines uh-huh. to actually grow. And then I realized, like, oh, Because no. that is the root of disciple, of course. Right. And, right. and whereas, like, as I get older, I'm like, oh, no, I get to see my father's heart. Right. And I now actually, you can look back and be like, oh, right. that's why... He made me do these things that I didn't like at the time because now in hindsight, I can look back and see, oh, that makes sense because I know my father's heart now. And so everything else begins to make sense, which is why the Old Testament cannot be fully understood without the lens of Jesus Christ. Right. And that's where like when I look now, I can say like like with Jeremiah, I will write it upon their hearts. Like, Like now when I look and I say I'm becoming like my father. I actually am am thankful. Yeah, like that, which is which is a different thing. A lot of us, a lot of us, when we say I'm becoming like I'm my becoming father. my father, right? Exactly. <laughs> or yeah. I'm becoming my mom. I'm becoming my father. Like like th- 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 that's derogatory versus it saying, can be yeah versus saying like no like actually like um uh, there's that song um oh a leader of the cats band. in the cradle oh uh, leader of the band <laughs> by um uh, what's his name um. 
Uh, I know, my parents love that song. They always play that. Uh, uh, Dan Fogelberg? Dan Fogelberg. Boom. Exactly. I got like, there. like, which is, which is, which is a different approach, which is like once you have the Dan Fogelberg. I have the 1950s heart. song, The Leader of the Pack, stuck in my head. And I'm trying to get to the Dan Fogelberg song, and I can't get there. Which is what the I The Leader actually, of the Pack. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that. Why did you just poison me? I'm sorry. Why did I, you? Why, I wanted you to share that, that solidarity was, with me that was some, what I'm suffering. That was some inception I'm stuff sorry. right there. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you to share with me my sufferings. <laughs> but yeah, the leader of the man. Um, I am the thing legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the leader of the band. Leader of the band? Did I say pack? I don't know. I said pack. It doesn't, none of it matters. Yeah. The Dan Fogel person. Yeah. But, but the idea of understanding our father only and our, our parents in hindsight, is the story of salvation history. Right. That we can look back. Because again, so many people read the Bible as though God is schizophrenic, that he's mean and angry and punishing and wrathful in the Old Testament, and he's loving and kind and merciful and forgiving in the New Testament. But the the ability of salvation history to show us that, oh no, it's just that we've had a limited understanding of God, and now the mystery is revealed over time. That's how scripture talks right. about itself. So it's interesting. Oh, go for it. Which is which leads us to this whole reality of saying like they will no longer teach their friends and relatives know the Lord, but everybody's going to have a chance to know the Lord. Yeah, and that's the part that I was I was struck by. So it says it will not be like the covenant I made with my fa- with their fathers. I, I took him by the hand, I led him forth from Egypt, and they broke my covenant. And they had to show myself as their master. Oh, we already read this. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is so. It's not dependent. Um, it is uh, alluding and um, foreshadowing what's going to be said, particularly in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is the book, I think, more than any other book in the New Testament that makes a big deal about this dichotomy between what God did in the past days and what he does in the last days, Mm. the past and the last. And last doesn't mean, you know, I think we think sometimes of the last days or the end times, as you know, if you're standing in the in the in the in the line at the grocery store at Safeway or something, and there's nobody behind you, you're last. But that's not what it meant in this sense. It meant the last days or the the climactic days. It meant when God finally steps into human history and and does what He'd always intended to do. The climax of all of time. That's what Jesus is. And Hebrews makes this point that we have the stages of unveiling of God's fatherhood throughout the course of a salvation history. But in the last days with Jesus, it is the climax. It's not that it's the end. It's that there's no fuller insight into who God is than Jesus Christ, Right. that he's given us the totality. So this is pointing ahead toward that. It's saying in those days, I'm going to show myself not just to be a master, but I'm going to write my law in their hearts, not on stone tablets. I will be their God. They will be my people. And this is the line that you referred to. No longer will they have need to teach their friends or relatives how to know the Lord, because all from least to greatest shall know me, says the Lord. I, I, I was hung up on that line this morning and thinking about what that means. And I was thinking about, to get a little bit autobiographical, not to get not to throw all my cards, but a couple of years ago, uh, I went to my 20th high school reunion. And the 20-year high... Did you go to your 20-year reunion of high I school? I wasn't able. You weren't able to. And a lot of... It was much slimmer than the... I, I grew I went, up here I went, in this I went town. to one party. Well, I grew up in this town, so it I was went, easier uh, for me. Actually, I went to the IB party. <laughs> there was it. You had an IB party? Yeah. And, oh, and, and everybody was confused because they kind of knew that I wasn't a part of IB, but then they remembered me, and it was messed up. That is messed up. 
Yeah. Well, what, one of the things, my observ- my two observations about high school reunions, because this does apply, trust me. Um, so did, you, did you go to your 10-year reunion? Uh, I was I'm not walk- trying to call you out here. I was, I was walking the Camino. <laughs> I, but I'm from here. I didn't have to travel. I mean, literally, I went to high school you know, five minutes from here. Right. At my 10-year reunion, and maybe some of you listening can, uh, um, can resonate with this, my 10-year reunion, everybody was trying to prove to themselves how awesome they were. Like, right. look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've right. done. Look at how great I am. By the 20, everybody's divorced, and they hate their job, and they're <laughs> no. miserable, and they're oh, like, no. let's just have a beer and a hangout. It was so much more enjoyable, because no one was trying to put on airs and just like, right. oh my gosh. But I remember, and some friends honestly had to drag me to the 20. I had a friend who came back home from Canada, and he's like, Powell, you are going to this with me. <laughs> and it was like five minutes from my house. Anyway. Was Greg Morgan there? He was not there, which is so unfortunate. Yeah. But Reed Beal was there, and he dragged me there. Okay. Um, but one of the things I remember was how creepy it felt. <laughs> and this is just a, a few years ago. How creepy it felt that all these people knew all these things about me, even though I hadn't talked to them in you know, 10, 20 years. And they were like, "Oh, you gave that talk, you know, in in Utah a little while ago." And I was like, "What do you?" And you 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 grew that garden recently. It was, it was this this the reality. And this was years ago. It's probably worse now or weirder now. But this reality of social media, where I was with all these people who at one point in my life I had known, but now I hadn't talked to in years. But they knew all this stuff about me, but they didn't really know me. Mm, yeah. And there was the weird thing that we've created in our culture these days of knowing a lot about. But not knowing, and and you and I, I mean, you know, working in theology and in ministry, how many books do we have by our bedsides or on our shelves? I mean, I'm scripture, the scriptures, that's my thing. How many books do I have about the scriptures? And this is why I kind of pointed at myself at the beginning of this podcast. I spend so much time every week reading about the scriptures and reading commentaries about the Bible. But how much time do I actually spend? in the Bible. Right. How many books do we read about Jesus, about the spiritual life, about prayer, and how much time do we spend actually praying right. and talking to Jesus? So what I'm taking from this, as far as what this is pointing toward, is now in these past, in these old days, in this old covenant, they need to teach their friends and relatives about the Lord. Because it's something to know about. But when the new covenant comes, the way that the incarnation will break into human history, right. it's not about knowing about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's not knowing about the Lord. It's knowing the Lord. You can read stone tablets and be informed about what we ought do and what we ought not do. But that's different than actually tapping into the life of God that is written inside of all of us. That's what the new covenant, and and it's not new in the sense that, oh, we never knew that that was possible before. It's that the new covenant will allow us into an identity of humanity that we were always meant to have from the time of the garden, that sin blocked off from us. We lost sight of who we are. We lost sight of our relationship with God. The new covenant will reveal ourselves to us reveal God to us. We won't have to tell people about God because they can know God. That was my my kind of takeaway. And again, that's more of a reflective than like strictly this is what it says in the commentaries. But that's what I was thinking about when I was reading that this morning, which does actually lead us toward where we're going. Does that make sense? It does. And I was moved by it. Yeah. And and it makes sense leading into Psalm 51. Yeah. Which is... Like, <laughs> Can I tell you what I love about Psalm 51? Yeah. So if you go uh, in, in the Bible that I like to use... Oh, I lost my place. So, you know, so yeah, many of the Psalms... Wh- oh, whatever just... What, what flew out of your Bible It's just a there. picture. And then I also have something of a, a, a Squishimals. My kids are into Squishimals, <laughs> which are apparently, according to this, exclusively at Target. 
but they're very squishy <laughs> stuffed animals. And some of you parents know what squishimals are. Yeah. I have a tag from Harrison the Squishimal in my Bible. It's holding my place in Psalm 51. <laughs> Psalm 51. So, so many of the Psalms are, you know, they have titles to them, which is really beautiful that, you know, some say to the choir master or a Psalm of David or a Psalm in honor of David or something like this. Psalm 51 is one of those that really drills down into exactly what the Psalm is about. It says, this is, so you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. of David or to the, to the choir director. Right. This is for the director of music. This is a Psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. <laughs> Boom. As specific as you can possibly get. Yeah. And I love that because what that does is it takes you into the heart of a moment in salvation history. When the greatest king in the nation of Israel had his greatest sin, where he committed adultery and actually murdered a guy and turned so far from the heart of God. And what made David so great in that moment was when the prophet, who was the conscience of the kings in so many ways, came and pointed out his sin, he fell to his knees and repented. And he said, I have sinned against God. And he apparently either says or pens or some combination thereof, Psalm 51, which is the famous, create in me a clean heart, O God. Human beings can never really ask God for a cleanness of heart if we don't recognize the brokenness of our hearts. Right, exactly. You you like the the acknowledgement that the acknowledgement of that, yeah. Yeah, you have to say like I, I need, need you. I can't save myself. Right. And David had proven to himself that I cannot save myself. I cannot be the king that God wants me to be. I cannot be the sacramental icon of God's kingship over the earth, which is what the king of Israel was supposed to be on my own. Which, I cannot do it. Which took a prophet to come to him and to right. say, hey, imagine this little story with yes. this little sheepy. It's one of the first parables of right. the Bible. And then it's like, he's like, man, that guy really is messed up. And he's like, you're that That's guy. That's you. Yeah. You're the man. But praise be to God. And, and how many of and us? And he's like, oh, no. And then what is it? what flows from his heart but total devastation and a song that he says, I need to actually sing this song and I need to, I need to, I need to praise this. But how many of us when called out for something that we've really done wrong, <sighs> will be defensive or go on the attack or counterattack the prophet or whatever it is. This is what makes David holy is right. that he doesn't counterattack. He doesn't go on the defensive. He doesn't right. say, well, you didn't understand. He falls to his knees and prays. Yeah. And asks and begs God for forgiveness. Right. And pens the Psalms for Pete's sake. Right. Which this is a, a really profound and really potent foreshadowing of what is being said in the first reading of this new covenant that God will make with the people, not only of Judah, but with all of Israel who's been scattered to the nations, which equals all of the nations right? in which they won't just know about what they should and should not do. They will know me. And the only way that David can really pray the prayer that he prays is if he knows God to be a father. right? Because you don't say these words to a master. You don't say these words to a slave owner. You don't say these words to a, a dictatorial, you know, authoritarian who's over you. You say these words to a father. I really blew it. Please help have mercy me. On have me, mercy God, on me. In your kindness. In your kindness, because I know you. That's the confidence in, in which David goes into this. your merciful love. Yeah, like, 
recognizing that there is a relationship that's broken to say, I actually need this. Like you are good. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like um, Happy Gilmore when he's like, he's like, <laughs> he goes to him and he's like, "You're smart. I'm stupid. You're good looking. Um, I'm not so attractive." <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's not the scene I was thinking of. First, <laughs> it, it, it's not exactly the same. No, but it's <laughs> all right. It's something. <laughs> but there's a there's a there's a a confidence right in the other to take you back right and this is where david uh, in a weird goodness. way has one foot in the new covenant almost i mean i hope that's not heretical to say but in a certain sense yeah, it's like totally heresy he, <laughs> but you know what i mean though yes. he he has a taste he experiences a taste of the new covenant which is what makes him an icon that points us <laughs> toward jesus he's not jesus Right. But he points us toward it in a very profound way. He gives us a small taste of what we will experience in the new covenant with the confidence that he feels. He's almost like a Peter who right. throws himself in the arms of the Lord after his profound sin and says, take me back. Well, and I trust that you will. Right. There's a big shift, actually, in, in, in verse 15. It says, 14, restore to me the gladness of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. I will teach the wicked your ways that sinners may return to you. Mm. It's it, There's something about, like, like, and this is a universal experience within the church. It's like those who have strayed far from God come back and they are like, please, for the love of it, everything good and holy, come and be with the Lord. That is me. I mean, like, that's my life. Yeah. Is I, I, I feel like I'm pleading with, with people to say, like, come back to God. Like, you don't have to be in this zone of, of desperation. And, yeah. and those who have tasted the darkness and mm. say, no, I only want the light. Now, there's a group of people mm. who have never really gone deep into the darkness. And and some of this stuff is confusing to them. So ignore it and just <laughs> and just recognize God is good like you already know in your heart. Like yeah. right? Like um but But it should also be a reminder that not everybody has experienced that. And not everyone not, not has everybody has seen Therese. Yeah. But that's that's important though for the older brothers of the prodigal son story among us. Right. Like exactly. wow, who do you think you are? But to recognize like, oh yeah. Yeah. God's the father of them too. Which goes into Hebrews. Can I say something ironic about Hebrews? Um, I mean, does it have to do with coffee? It does not. Not okay. even a little bit. Okay, let's let's get some irony. Our first reading, this is another fun fact that I learned today. Our first reading, right? So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is the longest quoted verbatim passage of the Old Testament into the New Testament. No. So it's the longest book into the longest quoted and guess where it's quoted verbatim? Hebrews? Yes. Guess where in Hebrews? Here? Not here. Oh, come on. <laughs> like well, three I, chapters later. I mean, come which on. Just, it, was, it was just really funny. Like yeah. it's l- the longest passage that is quoted, you know, in its, compl- in its totality <laughs> and is quoted in Hebrews chapter eight, which is okay. It's kind of funny because Hebrews, again, I mentioned it in the first reading. The, the major thrust, I think, of the entire book. So the, the book of Hebrews is it's written. It's, it's a... It's actually not properly speaking a letter like the other epistles in the New Testament. It is it calls itself a word of exhortation. And what it is, it's a word of exhortation trying to convince what the Hebrews, Jewish people who are presumably followers of Jesus to not throw in the towel when things get really hard. I mean, if you if you picture the Jewish world 
shortly after the time of Jesus, right? What's happening in Jerusalem a couple of decades after Jesus? What's happening in Judea? They're launching into headlong war with the Roman Empire over the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem and all of your neighbors and your kinspeople and your co-workers and your friends and your family, they're getting ready to go to war with the Roman Empire to protect the city of Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say? He said, when you see wars and rumors of wars, run to the mountains. Yeah, run to the mountains. Head to the hills. And how do you think your friends and family who are fighting for God's holy city are going to look at you when you're like, yeah, I'm going to take off to the mountains when things get hard. (laughs) Like, can you imagine how hard it would be to be a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem or Judea during the Jewish Roman war when Jesus said, yeah, you get the heck out of Dodge. It's not like Red Dawn. (laughs) When they're like, go to the mountains for the love. Oh, I'm thinking of the hunt for Red October. (laughs) <laughs> which is very different very, <laughs> that's it that's, yeah, underwater. that's like that's like apples and origins but like or no i mean it would be the worst when everybody's like hey right. it's time you're to stand traitor. and fight right and you're yeah. like uh i'll I'm see out. you later <laughs> like bye guys yeah and I, I don't think we we fully give credit to how hard that would have been which is why the letter of the hebrews was written right. as a word of exhortation to them who say who are saying you know I mean, geez, the Christian faith is hard enough in 2021. Imagine when you're like, wait, so what now? What are you, what are you telling me to believe? Like, so Jesus is the high priest, but he's not really there. And there's not a temple except his body, which has ascended into heaven. So I don't really see it. But I know there's a temple over there on that hill. And there's a high priest named Caiaphas. And like, he's flesh and blood. And I see him. But you say, Jesus is my high priest. But I can't see him, so just trust you apostles. And then when they when they fight with you to turn the other cheek and stuff, and that Jesus is actually the new sacrifice, but it's his body, but it's bread, but it's not really bread, but it's this thing. And I mean, Christianity is Catholicism is confusing enough. Two thousand years in. Can you imagine what it would have been like in those first years where you're not only trying to make sense of what Jesus taught us to do? But everyone around you is calling you a traitor and a coward for doing those things. So this letter is written as a word of exhortation by its own definition to say, if you understood the things that you have entered into, you would never in a million years turn back. You would never go back to the old stage of revelation because God has revealed something through Jesus that is not just another phase of revelation. Right. But it is the tops. It is the climax. There is no greater insight into who God is than Jesus Christ. So in the days, it says, when Christ Jesus was in the flesh, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who has been able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what was suffered and he was made perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. It's trying, this part of Hebrews is trying to make an argument as to why Jesus is a greater high priest than any earthly high priest we have ever known. Because what is a priest? It's someone who acts as intermediary between God and humanity. Who is Jesus? God, who became humanity. And so why should you not turn back to Caiaphas? Why should you not turn back to the old temple and the old liturgy and the old ways of being, the old ways of seeing God as master rather than father? Because Jesus Christ demonstrated what this is. 
Which, he is the fullness. Right. And, and and it comes to this phrase, which we have this week, son though he was, yeah. he learned obedience from what he suffered, which is in a very obscure passage. But it goes back to what you were saying in the first reading. In what sense? Um, you were talking about fathers and sons and yeah. obedience. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you Look, used all the words. Yeah, yeah. No, like <laughs> the, the reality is, is like son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, saying that that then he was made perfect and he became yeah. the source of eternal salvation. That that the narrative is longer than than this kind of immediacy, that there is something bigger and longer and wider and richer and deeper than what's actually happening, like, you know, like right now. But, but th- that's important because think of what it actually is telling us. And not just the Hebrews who are suffering from wanting to throw in the towel, but he's saying he was heard because of his reverence. So I, when I hear that Jesus was heard by his father, son though he was, learning obedience, when I hear that, I instantly think of the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, God, I don't want to do this. If it be your will, please let this cup pass from me. Or if you could interpret it differently, let this hour of the crucifixion pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours. And so to look at this sort of schema of, of Jesus as the final revelation of God, the climactic revelation of God, who suffered and died and was killed, and yet to be able to hold intention that God heard his prayer and he died anyway. But it wasn't because God was like, nah, I'm not going to, I don't hear you. We, we, we don't hear, we don't feel our prayers answered so much, so many times in the way that we want them answered, and we think that God hasn't heard us. Right. Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus prayed fervently in, in his humanity that that cup of the crucifixion might pass from him. God heard him and said, no, right? Right. No, this is the way. And Jesus said, thy will be done. Right. But I think we want to have this, this relationship or this version of God where he's just a, a, you know, a candy dispenser, or, you know, he's a, he's a vending machine where we put in our coin and we want to get back what we want rather than recognizing, no, I am heard even if what I thought I wanted is not God's will for me. And Jesus demonstrates that in his body. Which, which leads us into the gospel. I think it does, right? Okay, so I just have to tell you. Okay, okay. I... Oh, I was... I sorry. laughed so So did hard. I. I wonder if we're laughing at the same Dur- thing. During, like, during my prayer with this, I like... So it's like, okay, some Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the feast, and they this came the to best. Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip, we went and told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, and we told Jesus. And Jesus... So the Greeks starts, go to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew goes to Jesus. And, and, Jesus. The, and, then, and then Jesus... <laughs> goes off about totally nothing to do with these Greek people. Or does he? Because he's like, That's what I want to attack. So well, no, the, the, I just think yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I just think it's seemingly, funny. seemingly. Yeah, seemingly it's it's like it, I, I just was imagining somebody who comes up to me and they're like, Hey, <laughs> uh, hey, um, hey Father Peter, um there's some people who they they they'd love to see you. And I'm like I'm like <sighs> I really, I really have to do some administrative things that are wide and my strategic plan oh, that is going to take place over time is quite intense. And I'm really suffering with this because there's a lot of things that are going on in the ministry right now. But then this is really like, you know what, eventually I'm going to do this and then people will be converted. And they're like, 
um, what? what about the Greeks that were <laughs> right. going to come to see you? Like, right. I, just, right. I just was laughing because Jesus is, asked this question about like these Greeks that are supposed to see him. And he goes off into this like totally mystical, like profound thing that like they're standing there. They have the, the most utterly profane, practical question. Some Greeks want to see you. But then meanwhile... <laughs> He just goes totally he off. He launches. He launches off into this, like, the truth of his, the full existence and the plan of God in, in the face of this eminently practical reality. But, but what you said is really key to this, because what he launches into— What did you just say? Yes. The, is the—, the, it's, it's the what, Full he, plan of God. Like, he launches into the full plan of God. What precipitates him, what, what the catalyst is— for launching him into this telling as, of the full as, plan of God. As is some the people from the Delta, 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 and, nope. and the Chi Omegas, <laughs> Jeez, they're like, on, hey, man. we want to see them. some Greeks. That was my joke. I know. It was I, I, I have was, fraternities yeah, and yeah. sororities around No, no, no I, I get it. Oh, you're talking to them. Yeah. Not to me. <laughs> <laughs> so scholars do see this as the, the turning point of the Gospel of John. This is also why, I think I've told you this before, I struggle with John, man. Because he's confused. John confuses me. And me I always associate too. John with you. I, you're, John's your favorite. No, Mark's no, your favorite. Mark's, Mark's my favorite. favorite. I have the I have that good book about John. That good but, book. But I need a book. It's called to the like, Bible. It, it's called the the Bible. Um, John has a weird habit. Now I'm not convinced it's happening here, but John has this weird schema of showing Jesus in dialogue with people that out of nowhere turns into a monologue. And this is the thing Jesus does in John. Well, he'd be like Nicodemus, right? He'll be talking to Nicodemus and all of a sudden he's giving a monologue and you don't know where Nicodemus went. Is he still there? Is he just gone? Is Jesus just talking? What's going on? Come on, John. What happened here? This reminds me of that, although I'm not convinced it is. But one of the underlying themes of all of the gospels is that the gospel message will eventually, and this takes us back to the first reading, the gospel message will go out to all all of the people of the earth. This is the the table of contents of Acts of the Apostles. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. We know where the gospel is headed. We know the telos of the gospel. It's meant for all people, not just the Jewish people, not just the Israelites, but for all. This moment precipitates the end of the story. This is pointing us toward the teleology of this whole thing. So these Greeks... And presumably, these are believing Greeks. These are, uh, by, by Greeks, we're not just talking about ethnicity. We're talking about they're not Jewish. They're outside of the family of God. That's what the reference is. It's not just giving you an ethnic reference point. It's saying these are not Jewish people. They're outsiders. So some outsiders come. And these appear to be outsiders. The fact that they came to the Passover feast tells me that they're faithful. They know Yahweh, or at least they're seeking to know him. Maybe they've converted to Judaism. We're not sure, but they're, they're truth seekers, which is important. They had come for the Passover feast. If they're there for the Passover feast, what have they witnessed? They've presumably witnessed Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where everyone had shouted Hosanna to the son of David, who threw their garments down, who waved palm branches, where Jesus overturned the money changers tables and those who bought and sold pigeons these greeks these outsiders have seen dude this guy knows something something's up with this one it's not just oh we've heard about these prophets though there's this jesus guy 
they saw, I bet, I presume, they saw what he did. They saw the witness of the Palm Sunday event, and they said, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, we have to talk to him. We have to meet him. Because if they're truth seekers, and what, what this is pointing to, well, I, you know what? I'm not going to paraphrase it. I'm going to read, uh, if, may I read something really quickly? Yeah, from, of course. Uh, this is Pope Benedict XVI, his, his famous Jesus of Nazareth book which is three volumes. This is the one on the entrance into Jerusalem, the Holy Week one. Um, and I just want to read this because I, I, he says it better than I ever could. So he says this. This is Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. The evangelist tells us that the, among the pilgrims, there were some Greeks who went up to worship for the feast. The Greeks approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In the man with the Greek name from the half-Gentile Galilee. So it's it's appropriate that they approach Philip, who's got a Gentile name, who is from a Gentile place, who is accessible. I don't think we can underestimate the power of becoming accessible for people who are on the outside. Who can make how can we make them feel that we can they can approach the church and the throne of the living God and the person of Jesus through our accessibility. They're like, well, that guy has a name kind of like ours. He's from some place that resonates with us. We can talk to him. And it says they evidently saw a mediator who could give them access to Jesus. We may see a distant echo of these words spoken by the Greeks. Sir, we wish to see Jesus in Paul's vision of the Macedonian, blah, blah, blah. Okay, the gospel goes on to say that Philip discussed the matter with Andrew and that the two of them went together and brought the request to Jesus. Jesus replied, as, as so often in John's gospel, in a mysterious way that was puzzling at the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. When asked by a group of Greek pilgrims for the opportunity to meet him, Jesus responds with a prophecy of the passion, in which he points to his imminent death as a glorification, glorification that is manifested in great fruitfulness. What does that mean? It is not some brief external encounter between Jesus and the Greeks that matters. There is to be another far deeper encounter. The Greeks will indeed see him through the cross. Uh, He comes toward them. He comes as the grain of wheat that has died, and he will bear fruit among them. They will see his glory in the crucified Jesus where they will find the true God the one who they were seeking in their myths and their philosophy, the universality which Isaiah speaks is brought into the light of the cross. From the cross, the one true God becomes visible, I might say knowable, to the nations. In the Son, they will recognize the Father. That is to say, the one God who has revealed himself in the burning bush. This moment is what points us to head to what the entire gospel is. The utter accessibility, the knowability of God, not just to the Jewish people, but to all of the nations of the earth, which is why the turning point in the gospel is at the very beginning of the gospel, the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus says to his mother, woman, my hour has not yet come. And now at this moment, precipitated by this message from outsiders, he says, yeah, my hour has come. Right. Which I translate back, and I might be doing some injustice to the language. I was about to, yeah, go ahead. The Jeremiah, right? Right. When he says the days are coming, uh, the Hebrew really says the time is coming. And I wonder if you might be able to render it, the hour is coming. 
when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Right. I like the days, and this is my last thought, and I'm... Uh, blah. The days are coming. What does it mean the days are coming? The hour, because this seems like a, an allusion to Jesus's hour of his crucifixion, his glorification. His passion, but yeah. what is Jesus's hour, at least in the Catholic tradition? It's the Triduum, right. which is what? Three darn days, which you can look back at Isaiah or at Jeremiah, who says, the days are coming, says the Lord. Well, what are those days? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, baby. Right. The triduum is coming, which is one liturgical moment wrapped up in three days, which usher in the new covenant of the knowability of God by his suffering, his death, his falling to the ground to rise to new life, to bear fruit to the entirety of the world. Which is his throwdown. Which, which is, is which is his throwdown, yes. Which, which is his throwdown against all evil and to say, like, we're we're gonna get this done. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the throwdown. It's the th- <laughs> it is the throwdown, and that's the hour. I'm not trying to push the the metaphor too far, but what does he literally say? Unless a grain of wheat is thrown, thrown down, down, it remains a grain of wheat. Right. The throw I mean it, it's the throwdown. I don't it know the, the way around it. I mean like and and thus we uh, thus we are preparing for Palm Sunday. Right. I mean we're, we're in the fifth week which is nothing but a preparation for the true one. Which is nothing but a preparation for eternal life. Oh. Nicely done. <laughs> well played, <laughs> well Father played. Peter. Oh, well you guys, thanks for being with us on this throwdown. Um you guys Indeed. are the best and uh Prepare thy hearts for the coming of the Lord. Indeed, 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 he is coming. Well, he's already here, but he's coming too. It is the end times. (laughs) (laughs) It is the climactic times. It is. Because we live in Jesus. Right, we're there. God bless you all. All right, we'll see you next week, everybody. Don't fake the funk. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Uh, That is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.